This is Bonjour Chai, the Woke Mediocrity Edition. I'm Avi Fangold in Montreal, and I'm here with Phoebe Maltzbovi in Toronto. We are your frozen chosen. On today's show, we are tackling the topic of Jews' roles in society. Are we disappearing? Are we looking at the right metrics? We talked to Rabbi Chaim Strachler to find out. And Phoebe and I get into her review of David Bernstein's new book, Woke Antisemitism. Phoebe, how's it going? All right. How are you doing, Avi? Have a good Purim? I'm good. I'm recovering. We had uh, quite the shindig. Um, we were recording this on uh, Wednesday. So, uh, yeah, last night was uh, quite the soiree at our home. Uh, we have always like a big, big Purim meal, and it's sort of like a drop-in sort of thing. Um, yeah, we uh, went all out. We I grilled flatbreads. We made all sorts of skewers of stuff, and uh, you know, it's kind of fun. We, you know, but that means that uh, made for a rough morning today. Oh dear! The and and any uh, interesting acid trips since last week to tell us about? <laughs> no, but the amount of people that are like have approached me and like, listen, if you need some, I have a source and it's good stuff and it's real. And oh, I can't tell you about my. Uh, I, I want to tell you about my like brother who does this and my cousin who does that and uh, he's a psychologist with this or that like it's kind of interesting that people come out of the woodwork when uh, psychedelic uh, use gets uh, mentioned and discussed Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's not just that you're imagining uh, them coming out of the woodwork literally because of the (laughs) no no I am not Um, yes because I have extensive (laughs) experience with the use of psychedelics Um, yeah, no, I uh, maybe next year we'll have a, a Purim trip to uh, to speak of, but uh, but not this year. This year was purely cocktails. Any good ones? <laughs> um, I mean, when you're hosting like thirty to fifty people, it's hard to make cocktails like to order like shake cocktails for everybody so i tend to go the batched route so i made like a punch and then i made uh, a big batch of negronis that i stuck in the freezer and just let it go um as you know people just pour for themselves um i did make a really interesting cocktail i got asked by the jewish journal of los angeles to uh for a purim cocktail because they found out about me through a colleague and uh i came up with a cocktail called esther's revenge and it was like, what's the type of drink that Esther would use to like make sure that uh, Haman's downfall would be assured, right? And uh, so it involved like this weird like syrup that I made with like all sorts of spices from the region and Iraq and like all the things that I thought that she might have at, like there. And then I uh, I finished the cocktail with garnish with uh, eleven raisins on a fifty. Uh, on a 50 cubit cocktail pick wow um because it's designed to like symbolize Haman and his uh 11 uh, Haman and his 10 sons who were then hanged from hung from the gallows and uh so yeah nice little fun mm-hmm. line there you can go check out the entire recipe um at the Jewish Journal of Los Angeles we can put a link in the show notes um but they were nice enough to publish a cocktail what's been what's been on your mind what have you been did you do you have memory Purim memorable no moments? No thoughts uh, about Purim at all, other than that it sounds like a lot of excitement was had. Um, but yes, <laughs> I did write about something this week. Yes, trad wives. I have a few thoughts about trad wives um, because I read. Um, so this isn't my nachos. This is my. Um, just chit chat about what's happening in the world a little bit, which is that apparently there are some women on TikTok who are trad wife influencers, and there was this really, really compelling interview with one of them. So hold on, I, what's I will, a trad oh, wife? Well, I'm gonna. Oh, don't worry, don't worry, I'm getting <laughs> to that. Um, I didn't know, and I'm still not entirely sure, but basically, there are women who are stay at home wives. They do not necessarily have children, and they are generally, I believe, in the United States, and they are social media influencers who post about like videos and so forth about, you know, their lives where they, um, out of their understanding of tradition, uh, stay at home and serve their husbands and do not work for pay. And there was this really compelling interview with one of them in The Spectator by Cara Kennedy. Cara Kennedy is a journalist, not a trad wife. The trad wife is Estee Williams. And yeah, it just like it was an 
a really interesting interview, but then it just had me um, thinking about this concept of a trad wife and wondering whether there's anybody Jewish in that world. And I Googled it, and the only person who came up was the person who I had also thought about, who's Abby Shapiro, the American political pundit, right-wing pundit, Ben Shapiro's sister. So she's apparently a trad wife influencer, although she doesn't use the term trad wife, but basically somebody who posts videos, selfies, and so forth in the name of traditional values, but promoting modesty. So where this gets relevant for our purposes is I wrote about this and then a ton of people replied with like, of course, there are Jewish trad wife influencers. Of course, of course. I'm like, okay, tell me, who are they? Who are they? And some people did come through and it seems like there's a whole world out there that we may um, one day explore. Uh, these I'm assuming are these are the women that like sew their children's Purim costumes from scratch and make like their own gefilte fish and things along those lines. Is that like the trad meaning mm-hmm. like you're it's a return to tradition, right? Yes. I don't know if that's okay. what they're doing. I don't know if that's what they're doing because that's the thing is it seems like there are it doesn't seem like this specific kind of homesteader aesthetic is necessarily something that observant Jewish yeah. women who are influencers who do exist are doing. I think that the, and yeah, my sense is that probably Jews tend to be urban because of the need to be closer to community and closer to Jewish resources. And the women that would be like in, enticed by this idea of becoming a trad wife um, probably want to live in large communities where they can have access to uh, resources that they might not have a- might otherwise not have access to when they're living on the farms, and uh, I think that there has been a specific like move away from country living for Jews. Where right? you used to have Jews all up and down like the prairies and the American Midwest, like all these tiny towns had a shul or had something, and uh, we are moving into increasingly urbanized religion and religious communities, and uh, you know that there's an interesting dichotomy there maybe something oh, some sort of tension sure. let's uh let's hold on to that i think that there's mm-hmm. uh, there's ideas here and let's let's explore that a little bit more maybe in a future episode i hope so yeah i read your review of david bernstein's new book uh woke anti-semitism and uh he's been a guest on the show in the past uh tell us what your thought was about the book like without getting too much into the review itself but uh let's i i had some thoughts Okay. Um, well, I'm just going to read the review. No. Um, I thought, so basically, I came at this book as somebody who is sympathetic to the argument that there is left-wing anti-Semitism and that left-wing anti-Semitism often gets overlooked. And I also think that sort of the excesses of whatever you want to call it, call-out culture, cancel culture, social justice culture, whatever you want to call it. Like, I think I, I'm sympathetic to these arguments. But then this book was just very frustrating on that front, because the point of the book was ostensibly that um, sort of the progressive excesses are bad for Jews, bad both in the sense of anti-Semitism getting overlooked in the kind of uh, David Bedil Jews don't count sense where um, progressive activists and the like don't consider anti-Semitism as one of the isms to worry about. But also um, it's about the book is about um so-called wokeness within Jewish communal organizations and how, um, in Bernstein's view, it has really been a bad thing for these organizations. So fine, that's that's an argument and all that. But then there are all these personal anecdotes, which I think are meant to make it a more colorful story and do in some ways. But then there was there were a couple that just kind of had me pause and wonder what the whole point of the endeavor was, one involving... Bernstein's first ever encounter with political correctness as such, a woman um, with a PC pin. And he writes about this woman's hair, in a, a Jewish woman at a Hillel um, convention, like a, a fellow college student. He was a college student at the time who um, he talks about her frizzy hair in a way that I think in another context would probably be uh yeah not not so nice so anyway i was i'd like the record to state right now even though it's an audio medium that uh phoebe's brown hair is perfectly coiffed definitely Um, yes i you cannot catch me out i have styled it because nobody will know i have styled it specially for this podcast that is why it looks definitely not like i just um rolled out of bed but absolutely yeah yeah i mean it just that uh, yeah that's basically the gist 
interesting. So first of all, I'm, I don't know that like anti-Semitism on the left is not like called out. I see that called out all the time, maybe because uh, the community that I happen to be in tends to be much more right wing and they're very happy to call out whatever anti-Semitism they see on the left. So I don't think that it's something that is not getting attention. I think that the problem often is just as much the fact that the establishment of the Jewish, the established Jewish community doesn't want to recognize that there is anti-Semitism on the right. Mm. Right. Uh, to me, a great example of that is when the conservative party recently, there were members that met with like avowed anti-Semite uh, and there was like a real downplaying of it. There was like, yes, this shouldn't happen. Um, but from the establishment Jewish community, it was like, yeah, let's move on because the conservative party um, for a lot of people is the party that they want to vote for yeah. and, you know, whatever it is. And that there's, there's a lot of downplaying. We see this in American mm. politics. We see this. So in I don't think you see that, that in America. People on the right. No, I think that's where it's different. I think it's because most American Jews are Democrats to the point that I think there's just this sense that the left is the safer side. That's one piece. Yeah. And the other piece is that Jewish nonprofits like David Bernstein writes will have very sort of progressive, you know, like recent college grad type people who are, you know, like shaping the culture. I don't think that that's I yeah. think it's probably a, a bit of this is a bit of a Canada U.S. divide. Yeah. So the first thing, like I said, I, I, I tend to disagree with him that I think that there is anti-Semitism on both sides. And that, that I agree with you. When, sure. you. when you really are looking to call out the anti-Semitism on one, you're essentially looking to mask the fact that there's anti-Semitism on both sides of the aisle and that that's mm-hmm. a significant problem. Um, and then it sounds like everything else that he seems to be talking about is... Um, his problem with wokeness in general, and he just maps that onto the Jewish community. And it really has little, from what I've read of the review, I did not read the book, but we have had him on the show and I know sort of where his politics lie. Uh, It sounds a lot like he's just kind of pushing back against woke culture and mapping that onto the Jewish world, but it doesn't have anything specifically Jewish to attach itself to. I'm really glad you bring that up because that I think is really at, at the center of the issue with the argument of the book. So I found there were that thing about the woman's hair and another thing about women seemed just a bit off-putting, especially because, you know, half of Jews are women and happy International um, Women's Day to all who celebrate um, from a day late. Um, but basically, the but, but no, exactly what you're saying. Like there are parts of the book that are about sort of trans issues or um, just like sort of hypersensitivity in schools or whatever that just seem like, okay, these are these sort of buzzwords, but they have nothing to do with Jews. They have nothing to do with anti-Semitism. They have everything to do with the fact that, you know, Bernstein has whatever politics he has, which, you know, is his right. But like, it just didn't seem to have anything to do with Jews. And I wasn't clear on why Jews as such should care. You know what I mean? Like it, that that just yeah. Didn't I've mentioned this in the past. The me. same way that I have a hard time with people who make any issue a Jewish issue to like show, remember, like you you shoehorn whatever topic you're loving and you're interested in and say, see, this is in Judaism also, mm-hmm. and they find some way to do it. Um, I have a hard time with people who are looking to call out X culture and call it out from within the Jewish community without the fact recognizing the fact that not everything is about Judaism. Right. And I'm not saying to the exclusion that there are definitely some trans issues that definitely significantly do impact and relate to the Jewish community in a real meaningful way. But not everything trans has to do with the Jewish community. Not everything about racism has to do with the Jewish community. There are things that are not necessarily in our, you know, big tent and we should just leave those alone and you should attack them as, you know, whatever it is that you don't like, but just leave the rest, leave the Jews out of it sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think this also comes up in terms of, yep, because all of these issues, right, they could impact people who happen to be Jewish, but are they Jewish issues as such? Not necessarily. And if you want to make that case, you have to actually, yeah, make that case. And I think there's this danger, and I, I saw this also um, I ages ago when I reviewed Barry Weiss's book about anti-Semitism. This was kind of an issue as well, where people want to um, make Jews these kind of symbols of liberal democracy. And, you know, if you're pro-liberal, you're pro-Jewish. If you're pro-Jewish, you're pro-liberal in the like classical liberal sense. And I think No, I think that, like, my version of, like, what it means to fight anti-Semitism would be fighting the idea that Jews are an abstraction and some sort of symbol of ideas in the broader culture. No, Jews are ourselves. We have our own many, you know, different ways of being Jewish, but this is not, like, to be a symbol for broader society isn't something we should encourage. Um, 
if that makes sense. Meaning that we're not the lens by which we should see everything. Mm, well, more just meaning that like you should support Jews because Jews are people, not that you should support Jews because Jews are canaries in the coal mine of for liberal democracy. Yeah, I have a hard time with that one also. I think that like there's been a lot of other canaries in coal mines that we choose to ignore, but as soon as it becomes mm-hmm. our canary, then we're going to like wave the flag and say, see, see, we're, we're in trouble, right? Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, there's that's that's not a good look, right? That w- the only canary that I care about is the canary that's mine. Um, oh, pun, good pun there. I think sometimes you just have to be and do your thing as a Jew, uh, however that is, and move on and don't feel like you are the ultimate lens or the ultimate apotheosis for all of Western civilization. And when that happens sometimes and we see that happening, then that's a problem. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know. Uh, that's my thought. Mm-hmm. On it. And my hunch is you would probably but have a whole a whole different set of uh, issues with the book. Issues with his book? Yeah, yeah probably. Yeah. Maybe I'll get around to reading it. I'll put it on my stack. Um, <laughs> the review enough was interesting and uh, my stack gets larger and larger every day. But, you know, that's... But you are a person of the, the book, right? I am a person of the book. Absolutely. On to our main interview with Rabbi Chaim Strachler right after we hear from our sponsor. During World War II, the Nazis began a little-known program of extermination for their own children. In Peter Klenot's new mystery thriller, The Unwanted, 14-year-old Hannah Ziegler is being driven by her grandfather and her psychiatrist to a euthanasia center. 16-year-old Silky Hartenstein graces the cover of Nazi propaganda magazines. Avi Kreisler is a Munich police detective rounded up for Dachau. And a patrician father hopes his son, David McAuliffe, will be elected the first Catholic president of the United States. In The Unwanted, in the aftermath of war, revenge brings these four people together in ways unimaginable. The Unwanted. Do not skip to the last page. Find it at Amazon and Barnes & Noble. For several decades, Jews were used to seeing books with titles like Great Jews in Sports, Great Jews in the Arts, or other similar, you know, books. These books often served as bar bat mitzvah gift fodder or an opportunity to kvel a bit about our achievement in society. But in a short piece for the Jewish journal Tradition, Chaim Strachler points out that these books have all but disappeared and wonders what it might mean for the Jewish community that we no longer collectively celebrate our achievements. With us to talk about this is the author of the article. Chaim Strachler is the rabbi of congregation Renat Yisrael in Teaneck, New Jersey, and a former contributor to the CJN when he was the rabbi of Shari Shemayim in Toronto. Chaim, welcome to Bonjour Chaim. Thank you. Thank you, Abby. Thank you, Phoebe. So, One of the things that you said in your piece is that for a long time, we were quick to point out greatness in the community, but we were easily willing to disregard various misdeeds. And so, you know, I found that this resonated with me a lot because I think a lot about the tension between the message we receive about being the chosen people and the fact that we, there's a large share of people who don't act in a chosen manner, right? So how do we accept and move forward, right, as a Jewish community with the possibility that Jews might be a normal people, right, that you have to choose to be chosen, so to speak? I think it's a a great question, Avi, and... uh the uh, there is, I think, a, a certain defensive posture that we take uh, as a people in light of the history of anti-Semitism. And in the article, I speak about two types of anti-Semitism, more than anti-Semitism and less than anti-Semitism. And for much of our, our people's history, there was what we'd call less than anti-Semitism, namely that we were seen by our haters as being somehow subhuman, um, somehow less than others. And so in that environment, we were very quick to promote ourselves almost as a collective defense to say, Jews can do that too. We are, we, we also have baseball players. We also have actors. We also have politicians. And, and that's, was seen as being a ways to both promote ourselves in the eyes of others, but honestly, more importantly, inside ourselves, that we were protecting some piece of, of our soul in some way. And I think that what we're finding today is that there's a different type of anti-Semitism, which is becoming, you might say, even dominant, which is more than anti-Semitism. And this type of anti-Semitism says that the Jews somehow are all-powerful. that They control this, that, and the other. And within that context... To be able to have a book saying great Jews in X, Y, or Z, Z, uh, would be a, um, almost like a, um, a threat to our people's existence if we were to promote such books. Because we don't want to be so special anymore. 
We don't want to be great. We want to be just, you know, we're, 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 not, we're, we're not so privileged. We're not so out of the ordinary. And um, that's, I, I think, a, a signal to something which reflects, you might say, that this chosenness problem that many of us feel today. And that is that um, to be a Jew is to be part of something, something with it, which is um, a great story, a great uh, destiny that we have as a people. And uh, the question of how we achieve that destiny, whether it's something that we achieve by being different or whether we achieve that destiny by being aligned with general society is uh, an ongoing challenge that we have to face as a people. You know, I find that there, you know, that tension right there is very much still hovering in the background of so many of the discussions that we have in that we have attempted to be normalized by society for so long um, that the second that we were or as soon as we were um, and we started feeling anti-Semitism, we needed to push back and reminded people that we were still other. And that tension that you speak of st- is at the heart of where that is in that are we really part of the community and say we are, there are great Jews in sports, really we're part of with their artists, as you said, all of this stuff. Um, but then as soon as there are problems within the uh, from general society to the Jewish community, we like to remind people, no, 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 hold on a second, right? We're not like you, right? And when somebody hates us, it's not like you're hating just another person, you're hating an entire group and that they were a minority and all that. And it's almost like we succeeded too well, right? And I wonder if you th- thought about this, right? That what happens, right? The unintended consequence of succeeding too well, that when the anti-Semitism comes up, right, there's a problem there. So I think you're bringing up an interesting point, which is a bit of a bit of nuance in what, uh, what we're facing, and, and that is that um, I, I think that we, when we become integrated um, and then we, we still face hatred, I think there's almost an expectation that the hatred w- would somehow have, have stopped if once we become normalized and that we, we almost want to be normalized to a certain extent. And when hatred then comes and says that, hey, you're not going to be you know, outsmarting anti-Semitism, this thing that, that has existed with for our people for, for millennia is not going to be solved with great Jews in books. That, that somehow, even within Western society, even with the advent of a, a Jewish nation state, that somehow anti-Semitism is still hanging around is a little bit of a shock. And we, we do have to confront anti-Semitism and make clear that we too are, are, are being hated here and that that hatred has all sorts of manifestations which are in no way worse and in many respects far worse than other forms of hatred in, in, that exist today. And so we do have to uh, put that out there, but I think we put it out there reluctantly, that there was almost this hope going back a generation that really never again would be never again. That somehow, if we educated everyone about the Holocaust, if we put out enough books that said, hey, the Jews are not less than, that we are just like everybody else who do contribute to this world, and they would stop hating us. It hasn't worked. So, in a sense, though, what you're saying is, is that we try to not be another, and we'll always be another, and that that is... I'm okay with that, though, right? I'm okay with always being an other, right? Because I think that every group is always an other, right? We're always an other to somebody else. And you might be the dominant, but you are often a minority in something, right? If you say to yourself, you know, who are the Muslims uh, in the world? Uh, well, they're a minority of the, the global population. Christians are a minority in certain societies. Jews are a minority in a lot of other societies. And the fact remains that... Um, the hatred is not, I mean, it, there is a particular anti-Semitism that's there, um, but the problem that needs to be fixed is hating other minorities or other, others in any given society. And that that's not a distinctly Jewish problem. That's just a problem that society has. So you're, you're suggesting that, that anti-Semitism is one type of hatred among other hatreds. Yeah, I, I, I sort of do think that. And I'm not sure that, that there is a uniqueness that, um, 
groups that hate other groups will always be finding minorities to hate and right it didn't work as you said and i agree that it sh- it doesn't work to normalize to say that we're going to be as part of this dominant culture because you're always going to be an other um, and there always will be others in society we don't look for like a hegemonic group of people in this world we look to and we celebrate diversity right you might be from new jersey you're back in new jersey but you have to remember that we believe in the the multicultural aspects of our society in Canada, not the melting pot aspects of society. Um, and so, you know, I like in order to celebrate multiculturalism, though, you have to be willing to accept others and that anti-Semitism is just one hatred amongst many. Yeah. So I, I would just add that um, the, the history of um, Western society and, and you might say the hopefulness of generations ago, the things in the John Lennon song, Imagine, Mm-hmm. There, there was sort of this this hopefulness that eventually difference could disagree disappear, and that whatever otherness there was would not have to lead to division and and hatred. And uh, the society that in which we live is uh, is is not. It's almost reached the point where, like you're saying, that there, it's always there's always going to be this otherness in, in one way or another, and that you know, that that's something which is of great concern to to us. But I think also on a uh, historical level, there, there is something about the otherness of the Jew, which is distinct um, among the various types of othernesses that have existed within history. And you're almost like trying to normalize anti-Semitism. You can't normalize a Jew, so we'll normalize anti-Semitism. And that's, you know, Jews are no different or anti-Semitism is no different. But even there, I think that, um, that there's something about just how anti-Semitism finds a way to morph. Even this morph from, from less than anti-Semitism to more than anti-Semitism. It's just there's something about this thing that is almost beyond, beyond other stories. And if, if I'm going to put like a like sort of a religious layer onto this, I mean, we are the Shabbos after uh, Shabbos Zachar and we are right after Purim. But that, that you might say that, that there's something metaphysical about anti-Semitism in, in terms of the whenever a group or any person tries to disturb a, uh, an equilibrium, there's going to also be a reaction against it. And that when the Jews come into the world and we are here to do something, we're not just here to be like everybody else, that when we represent the ideas of the Torah, as we represent the ideas of ethical monotheism and um, Sedek and Mishpat and so on, there's going to be a reaction against that. And you might say that anti-Semitism is that reaction to a certain degree. And in, in finding a theological way to approach this metaphysical impossibility that, that somehow whatever we do, there's no way to stop this hatred. I, I think that there's, there's something hopeful in recognizing that, that it's, it's a function of who we are in a way that validates our mission in a way that, um, again, once again, differentiates us from um, with, within the human story. Um, so first of all, I, I loved your article. It was really interesting. Um, and this, the way that Jews in um, has a tendency to claim as Jews, anybody with even a really tenuous connection to Jewishness, and more specifically to kind of claim anybody an anti-Semite would consider a Jew and not to think about whether people um, are not even just halakhically Jewish, but whether they consider themselves Jewish in any way, shape or form. And this came up um, fairly recently, um, the last couple or last, yeah, in the last couple of years when um, the foreword claimed Ella Emhoff as a Jew. And then she or her representative were like, said something like, no, actually, she's not Jewish. Her father is Jewish, but she does not consider herself to be Jewish. And he only apparently got involved um, in his Jewishness after um, when she was no longer um, living in the same home as he was. So I was just wondering um, whether that how much there is or should be a shift away from that way of defining Jewishness within the Jewish community. Phoebe, I think that's a great question. And, and I think there's a whole, um, I guess, a cultural piece both internal to our, our, our community and also outside our community where people try to um, claim Jews or, or to like take on uh, a, a certain uh, story to like um, legitimize 
who we are. There's so a website, is, actually. I don't know if you know about this. There's a website called isjewish.com. And I discovered this recently. And you can type in somebody's name and they just tell you, like, and I don't think it's exhaustive or comprehensive, but it's like they just tell you, is this person Jewish or not, based on, you know, liberal Judaism, Orthodox Judaism, which parent is Jewish, which parent is not. And it falls into very much exactly what we're saying here. It's that the Adam Sandler Hanukkah song, right? That, yeah, that, exactly. That, that, whole, that whole thing. It, it, it's a... Um, uh, we have to ask ourselves, why do we do this? Why do we play that game? Why is that something which is so so important to us? And I think that that comes back to a certain degree to our desire to claim people as being part of the us. And in uh, being able to pick out the various um, stars of this world and say, well, they're one of us. Well, that makes for us that much bigger and makes us feel feel more special. But uh, I wonder the degree to which this is a thing in this upcoming generation. I very much think that in past generations, the idea of claiming Jews off of waivers, to utilize the, the sports metaphor, was something that was very, very important. But I, I think that the, the, the trend which I'm finding in, in the, the, the lack of publications of the whole Jews in genre, I think we're going to find something similar when it comes to the, 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 this... Um, claiming Jews off waivers phenomenon as well, that there's going to become a, a, less of a, a need for, for us to be playing that game. I don't think the game means as much as it once did. And uh, I think also, as I, I mentioned in, in the article, there's a, a certain problem to playing the game only one way. When you're only looking for people on the up and not, you're not t- taking claims to responsibility for them on the way down because there are plenty of Jews who've done horrible things. And the degree to which we as a community take ownership for our criminals. And I'm not talking about the Jewish gangsters, that, that somehow being a gangster is somehow not a problem in today's ethics. But I mean like the real problematic people. That well, I did have a question about that exactly, because I thought that was so interesting, the idea that, of like that you can't take credit for the good Jews without sort of taking blame for the bad ones. But I was wondering, when people take credit for Jewish success... Do you think in like this Jews in type of framework, there's any implication that their Jewish identity, values, past, background, whatever played a role in their success? Or do you think it's just sort of like coincidence? You know what I mean? Because I because what you're writing about in terms of Jews who've acted badly it's like sort of where did we like a where did we go wrong kind of thing. But do you think that with the Jewish success, there's a where did we go right? Or do you think it's just kind of like, isn't it neat that this person's, you know, great, great, great grandfather was Jewish and they have a Jewish last name? I think it's a combination. I think it's for each person it's different. And I think for a lot, a lot of people, it's, um, it's just, oh, isn't that cute? I think that there's a lot of our identity, which comes from, from collective um, Lincoln, and so if a person feels that like th- their Jewish identity is somehow a signal of being less than, so if you see a great Jew do great things, like winning Nobel Prizes or, you know, winning MVP awards, whatever that might be, you feel like, okay, you know, I- I'm, uh, I'm up in the world. But even like in sub-communities, th- th- this also plays out. The phenomenon around the, the YU basketball team last year and um, them winning all those uh, uh, 50 games in a row, whatever it was. That there also, that even within uh, the modern Orthodox world, there was a certain feeling of, okay, now we, we can play basketball too. Well, that's well, what I, sorry, we, just we one play, quick question about that. Is, do you think it's different if the, the Jews in, <laughs> do you think it's different if it's in something like sports, where there's a stereotype that Jews would not be in it, as versus something like um, Nobel Prize winning, where I think the stereotype at this point would be the Jews are you know, overrepresented or, you know, represented beyond our numbers or whatever in that? Like, do you think it matters? Because I'm also thinking that, like... Phoebe's dancing don't... around the fact that there's no book called Great Jews in Business. Well, that's... No, no, that is that literally my note. No, ever. no, but my... Okay, so literally, Avi, you, you're, you're going to laugh, but, like, literally my note, my note to myself for this very interview was that you don't ever see a list, like, in a Jewish publication, in other contexts you would, of, like, Jewish bankers, right? You do not see, like, you know top Jews in banking as like something a Jewish publication. Now, an anti-Semitic person might make such a list and publicize that, but that would not be. So yeah, that was, um, yes, Avi, exactly. Great minds. 
I'm always, I, I always think about the, um, the quote from Ben-Gurion that um, Israel is never going to really be a, a real nation, not just until we have, you know, the, the, the Jewish this and the Jewish that, but then he quotes the, the Jewish thieves and the Jewish prostitutes, right? That's mm-hmm. when we'll know we'll have a Jewish nation, right? And, you know, when you bring in this idea of misdeeds, you know, you stop and think for a second, why shouldn't we own this fact? If we want it to be normalized, if we really wanted to be part of like general society, we should say, of course, we have criminals. Our criminals are the best criminals, <laughs> right? And yet we like, we, we shy away from that. Of course we have criminals, <laughs> like, but, but we don't say that because we have shame, right? And, and it goes deeply to this sort of, you know, pride and shame in who we are as a nation. Um, and I think that that's not just rational and being able to say more than or less than. I think that that goes really to like familial roots where you, you don't want to talk about this, the brother that, that's, you know, did something wrong, but you never, you rarely want to write them out. Isn't there that expression like Ashanda for the, the goib? Is this not an expression? Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. So yeah. I think there you it's, go. it's really like the construction of identity and how each of us makes our own self, utilizing Judaism as one ingredient in terms of how we bring that in. And uh, we want that Judaism to have a certain color, have a certain meaning to, for our own purposes, that I should feel a certain pride, a certain sense of, you know, uh, I'm, I'm a good person. And the degree to which we whitewash that that identity by only including in that concept of my judaism only the the heroes and not the villains uh, i think that's that's a bit of a of a challenge and now i I was sharing this idea with with a group a couple of weeks ago and someone raised their hand and said but you know great or jewish criminals uh or not so great jewish criminals uh is not going to sell many books because people don't. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> There's several people that have made large careers writing about Jewish criminals. But like the swashbuckling gangster of yore is different from the Bernie Madoff. Right. Right. Exactly. Like it's, once there's distance enough that you could kind of have a bit of glamour to it as versus just pain. Exactly. And I think that, that, that that's really a problem of our, our literature in that we have been so much on the defensive for so long. that I think we've lost some of that. Isaiah, Jeremiah, um, skill, the ability to really bring out our our failures and have communal conversations about that. Because I think that there is a certain piece here of, uh, of collective identity that we all have to own together. And we have to be able to say, gee, how's our brand doing? And we, we we sort of just say like, ah, you know, don't, don't talk about Bruno. You know, don't, don't talk about Bruno. I don't want to hear about Bruno. And, and that's I hear, um, but I, I actually think it's different. I think that the the criminals of yore, the 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 swashbuckling, as you said, Phoebe, the the gangsters of the thirties, um, there was a lot. From what I've read, there was a lot of pride in their Jewishness. They were even at the time, and people loved this act. Of course, Lansky, he's mm-hmm. a Jew, he's one of our people. But Lansky himself took pride in his Jewishness and had a lot of Jewish identity around what he was doing. He was the kind of guy that felt like he could be a criminal and still go to shul. Um, and nowadays the Madoffs and the other criminal and the Epsteins, right, they are direct. First of all, not only are they sometimes directly doing significant harm to the Jewish community, they are, um, they, they have so little to do with the Jewish community oh, that there's this pushback away from them. Didn't Madoff have more to do with the, uh, Epstein maybe, but I think Madoff was pretty but involved. he 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 not nicely embezzled. i'm not saying he would oh sure i'm saying he embezzled directly mm-hmm. but he wasn't a shulgoer people didn't think of him as this like hey we're gonna you know we're gonna make you the person of the year for this synagogue or the the, the museum or whatever the jewish museum nobody was calling him out like this for his philanthropy for his judaism in that way um and that that is a, a significant distinction between the jews on the way down um in today's society um what do you think if you think that this is not necessarily the right way to like work on anti-Semitism and deal with our identity? Um, how do we what, what what should we be thinking in terms of the future? What would be the ideal sets of books to give bar, bar and bat mitzvah girls? And what's the way to combat anti-Semitism within identity? Uh, thinking about it in, in the context of these things uh, in your in your framing. So I think that we do need um, a certain Jeremiah, Isaiah type literature that's going to, you know, ask hard questions about what it is that we're we're not doing well, 
And again, I'm, I'm not sure whether the booksellers are going to be publishing such books because I'm not sure what the market is for, for introspection. But uh, we do have a very long legacy uh, of uh, critical, self-critical works. And I think that very often we, we're not prepared to write these, these works because we're so embattled. We always feel like, um, you know, so, to, to, to have that type of introspection puts us at risk. But with, with the long historical lens, I, I would question when has it ever been better to ask those, th- these sorts of questions? When have we had it so good that we're able to think self-critically and, and to engage in conversations about, you know, how it is that we behave relative to one another, relative to um, Gentiles? And this is a conversation we're worth having internal to Canada, to the United States, to Israel, these are important questions to, to be bringing up and to have a, a framework by which we're able to say, gee, even if we're not, um, you know, on the, the, the top level uh, criminals on these things, are, are we, how are we doing with that, that that's making the world a better place? Is that something that we really are doing or we just say that we're doing that and, and it doesn't really pan out? And is our... Um, uh, is our performance living up to our publicity? What about Jewish mediocrities? Because I feel like they're in really impressive Jews, and then there are really, you know, evil Jews. But there are also, you know, I almost wonder if like one way of pushing back against anti-Semitism that you actually do see is when somebody will talk about, you know, Jews and money, and somebody will be like, I wish, you know, like, that's kind of a thing, though. And I, I almost wonder if that's, some of the something that people already use and maybe could use as but then that also has its downsides you don't want to say you don't nobody wants to call themselves mediocre but you know there are jews doing everything including nothing particular i'll be i'll be the first one to say i'm plenty mediocre <laughs> i'm right there with you avi i'm right there with you we we the podcasters will uh will stand up for the mediocre jews absolutely so i think that there's um I think that in this the whole typology of the great Jews in, who are the buyers of these books? Now, obviously, it's not... Bar Mitzvah gifts. Bar Mitzvah gifts. For Jews 90%. Who will likely one day be mediocre on whatever level. Now, I think in, in a person's self-perception, um, you know, the, the whole celebrity culture in which we're all swimming often means that there's something of great psychological difficulty in accepting the mediocrity in some way. And uh, I think that it would be great if we stopped talking about one another as leaders and started talking about one another just as like souls and, and, and people and, and so on. And uh, I, I think that the, the, the culture of, you know, you're going to save the world. Every bar mitzvah is somehow you're going to change everything. You're going to be a leader. I'm not sure how healthy that is. I think that it's much better to be able to convey to uh, our, our children and to ourselves that we each have the capacity to do good and to do bad. And I think that, that, that that's a critical piece in our communal self-perception to really take stock and ask ourselves after 30 years or 25 years of, of a Tikkun Olam narrative, you know, uh, how, how have we done collectively on that, on that point? I'm not sure how statistically to go about tracking that sort of thing, but I think that we could write a couple of good articles with some good uh, anecdotes and talk to various people about how it's going. And I'm not so sure that we're gonna we're gonna come out so so uh, so swimmingly on that one. The real way to do it, and actually, this is a colleague of ours, uh, Avi Orlo. I don't know if you're uh, familiar with him. He's very involved in the world of Jewish camp, um, and he has a few really excellent essays on his website about Jewish followership, and that we've spent so much time and really, you know, probably millions of dollars at this point on Jewish leadership institutes and Jewish leadership and how you can be the next Jewish leaders. And we're not training people that you know what there are many, many more followers than there are leaders, and you have to be a good follower before you can even think about being a good leader. I think we do, we do have good Jew, Jewish followers out there. I think that, that often they don't get the attention that they deserve. And I think that I, I often see this in terms of um, presiding at funerals and, and hearing the stories of, of rank-and-file Jews who just do good. And not everyone's going to be an influencer. And you're going to have plenty of, of, of meaning in life. And I think I'd say the primary meaning of life comes from those, those, those simple relationships where you're able to, to put in a good word 
hook up someone's day with a smile and just, you know, help hook people up. And um, I think that we, we do share those those messages, but we often know we don't share them at perhaps at bar and bat mitzvahs, but I, I certainly hear them at funerals. And, and those messages really are, are valuable to be able to say to people that you can live a good life without having millions of followers. It, it works. I think that's a beautiful statement to, to end on. Um, Chaim Strachler, the rabbi at Renat Yisrael in Teaneck, New Jersey, just wrote a piece in Tradition uh, magazine about um, Jews in. And uh, thank you, Chaim, for coming on. And you're welcome back anytime. Thank you so much. This was great. Obviously, thank you. Will you stick around and give us a Nachas of the Week? Sure. Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com. Now time of the show for our nachas. Chaim, what's your nachas this week? So I, I want to begin by just saying that around my Shabbos table, I've created a little minhag. Um, you, you typically rabbis don't try to create Newman Hagim, but this is for a family culture sort of thing. And we go around the table every Friday night, right before Kiddush, and we ask everyone, what are you thankful for that happened this week? So I'm not sure it's necessarily a, a, a nachas point, but uh, I think that it, it certainly re- reflects something of, uh, of great importance in terms of uh, the importance of gratitude, about uh, feeling, um, not taking things for granted. So um, in thinking about um, what I'm going to be sharing around my table this Friday night, um, I would say that I get a lot of nachas from, from my people, from my community. And uh, it comes through in, in all sorts of different ways. And so I had great nachas on Perm, just being there at my, the, my community's Perm Chagiga and seeing the smiles on people's faces, seeing how they interacted with one another, being able to, to really be misameach uh, as a community. And I think that that, for me as a rabbi, you get, you get nachas in a slightly different way than, uh, I guess, rank and file. But uh, I think rank and file can also get nachas from this too. Being able to be a part of a, a healthy environment where people just make each other smile, make each other feel good uh, in a certain togetherness. And uh, the, those, those feelings come quite often, but often I think we sort of just pass over them very quickly as we try to muscle in for that uh, little kiddish uh, schnitzel or uh, the, uh, the bomba or whatever is there on, on the table. But uh, to be able to take a step, step back and to, uh, to feel the room, to feel the, the noise, to feel the, the energy of people just, just living Judaism together. Uh, that, that's my nachas. Beautiful. Thank you. My nachas this week is very simple. I found um, a piece of Judaica that uh, is going to be fun. Uh, we are thinking already. Uh, Purim is behind us. The Seder is ahead of us. Uh, those of you who have been listening for a while, I'm not sure if you heard this, Phoebe, before, but I mentioned this in the past. I, I do have a thing for very complicated puzzles, mm. like just jigsaw puzzles, which started in the pandemic, and I just didn't want any ordinary ones. I started to find the really like hard, difficult ones. Um there's a Judaica company that does these like very cheesy, chintzy uh, Judaica, like especially around Passover, where they put print matzah on like everything, like matzah tablecloth, matzah ties, matzah one piece bathing suit, like, like stuff like that. Um, but they made a 1000 piece matzah puzzle. That sounds so um, cool. It is like fiend. <laughs> I, I imagine it's going to be insanely difficult, um, oh but goodness. I'm up for the challenge and I will, um, <laughs> I, I, I will report back because it is ordered and it is on its way. And um, when it is done, we will uh, have to clock in. It might be, you know, not before Rosh Hashanah, <laughs> but uh, there's a thousand mini pieces of matzah and we have to put them together. Uh, that is fantastic. Uh, and I'm feeling very inspired to go out and order the exact same thing and um, have... We should uh, have a yes, race. Yes, yes. The great, let's the great matzo puzzle race. Don't um, open yours until uh, let's we both mm-hmm. have them in touch. In that. We'll figure this out. Definitely. We'll report back to everybody. That sounds amazing. <laughs> 
Phoebe, what's your nachos this week? So mine is a New Yorker article by Rachel Aviv called Agnes Callard's Marriage of the Minds. Oh my God. Um, I read this. Okay. So <laughs> I have so many she's thoughts. She's Jewish, apparently, Agnes Callard. <laughs> so we are on topic here. I'm sorry, I cannot make her Canadian as well. I, I do not have that power vested in me. Oh my goodness, right? It is like the the... It is everything. Tell everybody the nachos first, and then we can... Um, uh, yes, it's... <laughs> It's, what it's about. It's, um, yeah, so my nachos is, I suggest reading this article. It's about a philosophy professor and her husband and then her new husband, and they all live together. And um, she has interesting notions. And it's just a, a heck of a, a ride, that article. Um, maybe, maybe you would have to read it for yourself to get the full picture but basically it's about um the state of marriage today perhaps as viewed by somebody with um both very idiosyncratic and also very sort of if she were a man this would maybe none of it be surprising is maybe um well yeah so i found it fascinating that this entire discussion ensues uh about this woman and her relationship and relationships and everything that happened there and uh, i don't i don't want to get too into it this is a nachas this is not for critique um but i found the most fascinating piece of it is like how do you talk about love when you are a philosopher who is used to analyzing and being incredibly analytic about everything. Um, and then on top of that, the entire side piece of it, which is that she talked, they talk side about piece is well put sorry, autistic. But yes. Oh yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, that she is autistic, which adds this other element of like, analytic mm -hmm. and you know specific focus but um it blew my mind the entire you know interesting way in like how do we talk about love when we analyze it and the feeling versus the analysis yes i highly encourage everybody please go read this book this piece yeah so we we both encourage both nachases what's Excellent. plural of nachas nachases i believe yeah <laughs> thank you this has been a great show as always uh phoebe thanks avi Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending March 11th, Shabbat Parashat Kitisa. The show is produced and edited by Zach Kaufman. The executive producer for CJN Podcasts is Michael Freeman. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you told a friend about Bonjour Chai. It's one of the best ways we get new listeners. As all Always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. I'm Avi Feingold. And I'm Phoebe Maltz-Bovey.